and precious name. Amen. Now open your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. As we continue to unpack the truths that we discover in this letter, we know that we as a church must work to protect ourselves against disunity and against division. If you'll remember back in Philippians chapter 1, we discovered that the model for, for that chapter would have been Christ first. And what we discovered through chapter 1 is that the secret of joy in spite of our circumstances is in having a single mind. A single mind devotion that says no matter what happens in our world, no matter what's happening in our current life circumstance or situation, we will glorify God and, and seek to share the gospel with others. So Christ first is the motto for chapter 1. Chapter 2's motto would be others are next. Christ first, others next. And in chapter 2, we're going to discover that the secret to joy in spite of other people is in the development of a submissive mind. Now, several weeks ago, when I last preached, we worked through verses 1 through 4. And as we did, we discovered that there were seven steps to unity. For those of you that take notes and you have them before you, these will look awfully familiar to you. Those seven steps include things like encouragement, love, fellowship in the Spirit, compassion, concern for one another's joy. It includes humility and controlling of our self-interest. So if we have the single-mind devotion of chapter 1, then we'll have no problem in the development of a submissive mind that's called for here in chapter 2. So, so Paul lays out that expectation, and then he does something very beneficial and helpful for us. He gives us several examples of those that have had and demonstrated a submissive mind. By the time we get to verses 25 through 30, we'll see the example of Epaphroditus. And then verses 19 through 24, we'll see the example of Timothy. In our primary text this morning, from verses 12 through 18, uh, Paul gives himself as an example. But very gloriously and, and uh, very unexpectedly, uh, the, the first example that Paul gives to us is the example of our Lord and Savior. And we find that example given to us in verses 5 through 11. Now let me read through those real quick just to kind of refresh our memory and to, to get us up to speed. Verse number 5 uh, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now take a moment, if you will, just imagine the enormous step down that Jesus had to take in order for him to leave his exalted position in heaven and come down to the submissive position here on earth. I think it's virtually impossible 
for us to completely grasp the humility that it took for our Lord to make that transition. And yet, that's exactly what He did. And that's exactly what He calls for us to do in our lives. The point of the passage is that Jesus, He sat and He focused His mind upon humbling Himself. He took all that He was, and He took all that He had, and He came down to where we are to seek to meet our need. And in turn, He turns around and He places that same expectation upon our lives. Look again at verse number 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, take the attitude or take the mindset of our Lord and embrace it for yourselves. Which means we too are to take all that we are, take all that we have, and we must be willing to to get down and to enter into the world of other people and to help to meet their needs. We're to humble ourselves. We're to do all that we can in order to help to uh, solve the problems that afflict our families, problems that exist within the church, problems that are found throughout our community and, and, and to the end of the world. We, we too are to humble ourselves just as our Lord did and become part of the solution rather than perpetuating the problem. And I think as we read through verses 5 and 11, we read it, uh, we can agree with it, But then how do we go about practicing it? How do we go about taking on the same attitude and the same mindset of our Savior? I want you to know that the problem of trying to figure that out really isn't that difficult. Paul, what he's asking from us really isn't impossible. See, we develop a submissive mind not by imitation, but by incarnation. I got a verse I want to share with you. It comes with Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It's that next verse on the slide there. Hook me up, please. There we go. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, we, we don't develop the submissive mind by imitating our Lord. No, we have the submissive mind and we develop the submissive mind by the incarnation of Jesus Christ in and through our lives. I want to encourage you not to view the Christian life as a series of ups and downs. Don't view it as a series of mountaintop experiences and, and seasons in the valley. Rather, I'd like to encourage you to, uh, to view the Christian life as a series of in and outs. God working in us and us working it out. I want to share with you real quickly this morning just a three-step process on how we too can develop a submissive mind. First and foremost, it, it begins by a call for us to work it out. To work it out. Let's continue to read. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want to be real clear. We're, we're not told to work for our salvation. No, we're told to work out our salvation. And that meaning becomes even more clear when you look at the next phrase where it says, for God works, for it is God who works in you. See, salvation is the work of God. We cannot save ourselves. Only God can enlighten our minds so that we can uh, see the truth. Only God can move our wills in order for us to accept that truth. Salvation is not something that we can manufacture or produce on our own. It is completely and wholly a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, Paul is calling for us to work out what God has already worked in us. See, once we're, we're saved, once we become a Christ follower, once we've identified ourselves under the allegiance of our Lord and Savior, then we're to get busy obeying the Word of God. We're to take hold of this new life that salvation provides, and we're to take it, and we're to work it out. We're to work it out until it's completed. We're to keep on working it out until it's finished. And let me give you a little clue. It's not going to be completed, nor is it going to be finished this side of heaven. Which means as long as we live, we have room for improvement. We have time for growth and development. We're we're called to continue to work it out. That is, until God calls us home, ultimately, and then completely perfects it in our lives. And I want you to know that Paul adds a word of assurance. He includes a word that ought to give us confidence there in verse number 13. Look at it again. It says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So our God, the one who has already done and completed the work of salvation, is still at work in our lives. God gives us both the desire and the power to work out the salvation that he's already worked in us. So, let me make an obvious point, perhaps. If we have no desire for the Lord, if we have no desire for the things of God, then I would really caution you. I would even say that you really have no right to claim Jesus as your Lord. The promise says that God works in you both to will and to work. And if you have absolutely no desire for the will of God or to do the work of God, I'd encourage you to seriously seriously reflect on whether or not you have a true and authentic relationship with God. When you allow God to work in and through you, then you'll be able to take on any task that he puts before you, and you'll be able to take it on without any arguing or complaining. 
without any grumblings or disputing. See, God calls us to work it out, to work out our salvation, but he also tells us to knock it off. Look at verse number 14. He says, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That Greek word for all things means everything. Help me out. Everything. There's nothing that's not included. Do all things without grumbling, without complaining, without arguing, without disputing. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you believe that God is sovereign over all? You believe that? If you truly believe that God is sovereign over all things, then you also believe that God is sovereign over those unpleasant and undesirable circumstances in your life. Am I right? If He's sovereign over all, and He is, then He's sovereign over that as well. And then when we complain and when we grumble about those circumstances or those seasons in our lives, then what we're actually doing is that we're revealing to other people that we don't think God is doing a very good job doing His job. And we think that we could probably do a better job than what He's doing. Hello? If we're not careful, then griping and and complaining can become a way of life. I promise you, I'm not looking at any of you right now. But do you know someone who is always griping and always complaining? It's not cute. It's not excusable. In fact, the words of a complainer only reveal the spiritual immaturity of the individual. Tells us to knock it off. Stop doing it. To do all things without arguing and complaining. Let me take a little moment here. Let me share with you five reasons why people have a tendency to complain. I'm sure there's more. I'm just going to give you five. Reason number one. Sometimes people complain simply to get attention. There's a primary need within all of us to connect with other people. And complaining is often a means for a person to make a connection or to get the attention of someone else. A person may complain to a complete stranger just in order to try to make some type of connection. Like they might say to a stranger, man, is the line long enough? Could there be any slow? Is it cold enough in here? Whatever. So sometimes people complain in order to get the attention, and what they're really trying to say is like, hello, talk to me. So sometimes people complain to get the attention of others. Sometimes people complain in order to avoid action. People will complain in order to avoid trying to improve their community or improve themselves. You know, you've heard it. Nothing's ever going to change. You've heard that before? Maybe you've said that. What you're really saying is change is difficult, change is hard, and I don't really feel like putting forth the effort to see it through. You can't fight City Hall? You heard that one before? Again, it's hard, it's difficult, and I'm not going to put forth the effort. Sometimes people complain in order to get attention. Sometimes people complain 
in order to avoid action. And then thirdly, sometimes people complain in order to pre-excuse a potentially poor performance. To pre-excuse a potentially uh, poor performance. Like if a student complains of an illness uh, on the night before they take a test, then they set up an excuse for themselves in the event that they don't score so well the next day. A person who's about to sing uh, might complain of a sore throat or a restless night, and what they're actually trying to do is to lower the expectations should they, you know, miss a note or, or, you know, sing off pitch or off key. I don't even know what any of that means. It all sounds good to me, usually. But sometimes people will just do that. I can think of one individual that I've served with in the past, and they're not here, so you don't need to look around. You don't even know them. But this person would always, always show up for uh, worship rehearsals, always complaining about something. I can't find the note. I'm listening. I'm trying to find it. I had a long day. The kids are exhausting. It was excuse after excuse after excuse. When they were singing on a Sunday morning, they would come in with excuse after excuse after excuse. And eventually it's like, do you find any joy in what you're doing at all? If you can't find any joy in the midst of your service, then perhaps you're serving in the wrong place. Sometimes people just complain in order to lower the expectations of other people and to potentially pre-excuse a, a poor performance. Let me give you number four. There are those that like to complain in order to brag. And their complaint is ultimately a cry of superiority. It implies that the one who's complaining feels like they don't have whatever characteristic it is that they're complaining about. I'm not saying this is always the case, but typically when somebody says, my coworkers are lazy, what they're trying to say is, I work harder than everybody else. When they say, my boss is incompetent, what they're trying to say is, I am more intellectually superior than my supervisor, and I should be the one in control, not them. So sometimes they, they complain to get attention, to avoid action, to pre-excuse a potentially poor performance. Uh, they complain in order to brag, and then ultimately people will complain in order to try to control other people. People often complain in order to incite others to abandon their allegiance. Uh, they complain in order to build up support for their position, whatever their position may be. And they do so by focusing on what's wrong with another person or another person's position. When they say things like they're not, they're not a good leader or they're horrible in leading, what they're also saying is, I probably should be the one to replace them. Well, that's a lame idea. It also can be code for saying, my idea is much better. You should support what I believe, not what they believe. Let me just say this, that we can go a long way towards having victory over complaining by remembering the world in which we live in and our responsibility towards it. This world is a dark place. It's crooked. It's twisted. It is perverse. It is not the way that God originally created it to be. It has been twisted and warped with sin. But as God's children, 
We're not to be like the world. We are to be those in whom the darkness has been dispelled because of the light of the gospel. We're to be different because we are different. And we're to demonstrate that difference in the way that we act and by the things that we do. So if we want to develop a submissive mind, we've got to work it out. Work out the salvation that God's already worked in us. And we do that by being obedient to his word. We've got to knock it off. We've got to stop the arguing and complaining. So ultimately, and third and finally, so that we can let it shine, let's continue to look at our text. Verse number 15. It says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all Likewise, uh, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So we're to let it shine. The question becomes is how, how do we as God's people shine as lights in the world? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 16. Paul says it's by holding fast to the word of life. In other words, God's people can dispel the darkness of sin by spreading the light of the gospel. I think Paul was an extraordinary person for many, many reasons. Among those reasons was that he always had the tendency to keep eternity in view. I think that if there was anybody who had a right to complain, if you'll read through his stories and through all of his letters, you can see his hardships and the circumstances in which he faced. And even as he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, he's in chains, he's in jail, he's facing possible death. I think if anybody had room to complain, it might be Paul. But he doesn't. He was a living example of what he proclaimed. He's facing possible death, and yet he viewed his life as an act of worship, as a sacrifice. He says his life is a drink offering to God. And I think that we're typically, uh, we seem to be disconnected from what that truth means when he says that his life is a drink offering to God. We don't spend a lot of time in churches talking through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the requirements and the elements and what they represent. And because we don't spend a lot of time typically working through that and understanding that, when we read things like this, we just kind of read over it. We don't fully understand the true significance of what Paul just said. I'd encourage you at some point today to take your Bibles and, and read through Numbers chapter 15. In fact, I only read like the first 10 verses of chapter 15 of Numbers. And as you read through that, you'll see that drink offerings, they were poured out by the priest on top of the animal sacrifices that were being presented. So, so a drink offering would accompany the sacrifice that was to be presented. And depending on the sacrifice that was to be presented, kind of depended on what type of drink offering was to be poured out. An example, when they sacrificed uh, the lambs 
as part of their sacrifice, then a quart of wine would be poured out on top of the sacrificial lamb that was given. So the drink offering always accompanied a larger sacrifice. A drink offering was a minor thing that brought a major offering to its completion. You following with me? So if the drink offering is a small portion that brings the greater sacrifice to its completion, then then look back at what Paul is saying in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul's saying, like, even if I have to die, then I would consider it the finishing touch to their lives of service and sacrifice. Paul lived with eternity in view. And he's like, man, he was fully committed in that single mind devotion that said, no matter what he faces, I'm going to glorify God. If it costs me my life, I'll glorify the Father through my dying. Paul lived for nothing else except to glorify God and to share the gospel. His life was sacrificed for that purpose and for that purpose alone, which begs the question of each and every one of us. What about you? What about you? Are you fully committed to sacrificially serving one to another? Are you all in? Are you willing to embrace what God calls for us in His Word to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? To work it out with, uh, under the authority of our Lord and Savior, trusting in no one else or no other thing, but fully trusting and relying in Him. Will you work it out? Will you knock it off? Stop the complaining. Stop the arguing. Stop the murmurings. Will you work it out? And will you knock it off so that you can let it shine? And what? let what shine? Let the hope, let the glorious news of the gospel shine in and among your life, in and among your family, throughout this church, and throughout our community. Will you work it out? Knock it off so that you can let it shine? Oh, I hope so. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you for the salvation that you worked in us. Thank you that you continue that work by working to both will and and to work for your good pleasure. So God, help us in this moment, in this time of invitation. God, may we do a quick survey of our lives. First and foremost, let us know whether or not we have a true and authentic relationship with you that's based upon faith in your Son. If we don't, may today be the day of salvation. May your Spirit give us the faith that is necessary in order to receive the salvation to which you provide for your children that are in this place. God, help us to have a great desire to work out the salvation that you have given to us to fully embrace your word and to fully commit to carrying out your word and your will in our lives. God, whatever needs to happen in this place for you to receive the ultimate glory, I pray that it would happen so that we can rejoice and celebrate 
who you are, what you've done, and what you promised to accomplish. Be with us during this time. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.